He knows what lies ahead. Sometimes life can be a fearful thing as we face an uncertain future. But uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time was by someone named Corey Ten Boom. Some of you probably know who she was. And she said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And uh, it is good to know that he is in control and he knows. Let's take our Bibles this morning. We're going to turn to the book of John and chapter 2. John chapter 2. This is a record of kind of the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. He's called some of his disciples unto him. He's already performed his first miracle in the early part of John 2 as he was in Cana of Galilee at a wedding celebration and turned the water into wine. And uh, in John 2, and beginning in verse 13, we're going to read as Jesus goes into Jerusalem to uh, celebrate the Passover. And we read of the account of the first cleansing of the temple there. So if you're in John chapter 2 and you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of the scripture, I would invite you to do that if you are able to. If you're not able to, that's no problem at all. But John chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse number 13. The Bible says here, And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject, Zealous for God's house. Zealous for God's house. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we look into your word here in the next, next few moments, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just take complete control and that you would guide me to say the things that you want to be said. That you would help us to rightly divide your word today. That you would challenge and convict us, Father, in the areas that, that we need to be challenged and convicted. Lord, that we would leave here today with a greater love and a greater passion for you and for your house. And uh, Lord, for your purposes among us. And so, Lord, just work I pray according to your will and be glorified, for we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. One thing that is undeniable about the ministry of Jesus when he came to this earth was that he came and shook things up. He changed the status quo uh, of the religious uh, zealots of his day. He came and the people that he upset the most weren't necessarily the most uh, wretched, wicked, ungodly people in all, the, in all the world, but it was actually the religious leaders of the day that were most antagonized by the ministry and teachings of Jesus. And the reason for that was because so much of his message was against them. You see, Jesus came and made it obvious, made it very clear that it, his desire was not simply for a vain, outward, and fleshly worship, but for people who were truly seeking after God. And that was targeted directly at those types of people 
because the, the religious leaders of the day had become very consumed with the tenets of their religion without really truly seeking after God. And so Jesus came and he shook up and changed the status quo. Now, if you're like me at all, you probably, if you've been in church uh, a, a while like I have, have, have probably drawn some parallels between things that were happening in Jesus' day within the uh, religious world and, and drawn some parallels between that and even some tendencies that we see in our churches today. Even Bible-believing, scriptural churches, sometimes we get very comfortable, don't we, uh, just kind of going through the motions and doing the things that we know we ought to do or, or going through and, 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 and kind of following tradition more than necessarily even the Word of God. And we can easily default to that. And if you're like me, maybe you have prayed and sought the Lord and asked God to shake us up a little bit and to change the status quo. We often speak of a need for a revival. And I think this is so important and, and something that we need to hear today because, folks, we need revival. We need revival in our own personal lives, a renewed and, uh, and, and, and regenerated excitement and zeal and passion to love the Lord and seek the Lord and to know Him. We need revival in our church. I want to see God do great things among us. I want to see God shake us up. And, and, and I want to see a moving of the Holy Spirit of God that goes beyond what we have experienced before. Not because anything in the past is, is, is you know, an indication that God's not at work. But folks, we need God to work today just like He's worked in the past. We need revival. We need revival in our nation. We need the Lord to shake some things up and get a hold of hearts and, and to make some changes in us to turn our hearts back to the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. In his ministry, he came to turn the hearts of people to his Father. So Jesus came in, into the temple at the beginning of his ministry We'll see a little bit later on, near the end of his ministry, he comes back into the temple once again and purifies the temple once again and, and, and has to deal with the same issue there. So Jesus comes to the, the temple at the time of Passover and he finds there in the temple people who were sitting and, and had basically set up a, a business within the temple. You see, the temple was a place where people would come and sacrifice to the Lord, and they were to bring offerings to the Lord, sometimes of money, sometimes of oxen or sheep or doves that were an offering to the Lord. In fact, back in the, the Old Testament, God commanded, and he, he told them uh, what types of animals were to be offered and, and what they were to be like. And, and as people would travel to Jerusalem, you can imagine it became inconvenient at times to take of your own animals and, and bring them with you on a long journey to Jerusalem. And so someone, probably some great entrepreneur, got the idea, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up a store right at the outside of the temple there, or in the temple, and we're going to sell the animals that are required for sacrifice, and, uh, and people can just come and buy them here. It's so much more convenient, and they're, they're benefiting and we're benefiting because we're making some money on these things. 
And so they had, they had come and set up this, this business in the temple so that God's commandments could be fulfilled conveniently. Why is it that man always wants to take the things that God expects of us and make them more convenient and make them easier for us? But that's what they had done. So Jesus comes into the temple, this house of God, and he sees these people that had made his father's house a house of merchandise, a place where rather than uh, fulfilling the purpose of glorifying and worshiping the Lord in that place, this had become a place of profit, a place of greed, a, a, a place that now people were coming to not to meet uh, meet the desires of the Lord, but to meet their own desires, to satisfy their own needs. It had become a place of selfishness and greed in the very place that God had designated for himself. Think about that for a moment, if you would. That's a, that's a blasphemous thing to do, isn't it? And yet it's something that just kind of human nature seems to tend to sometimes. We, we take the worship of God and make it about ourselves our desires, our conveniences, our preferences, rather than God's. Well, Jesus, when he saw this, decided that he was not going to put up with that. And he cleansed the temple. He poured out the, the changer's money. He overthrew the tables. He drove out those who were selling and making gain in that place. He drove out the animals out of that place. And the statement that he made, verse number 16, he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. He was serious about the purpose of what that place represented. You know, really, it wasn't the building, the temple itself, that was so sacred. People worship buildings, temples. Paul said that God that made everything in this world doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And so it wasn't that the building itself was sacred, but what it represented was sacred. It was the place that people came to meet with God. It was the place where people came to worship God. And it had become corrupted by man's sin and greed and selfishness. Now this is I understand in the New Testament portion of the Bible, but uh, historically speaking, we're actually reading something that took place in Old Testament times. They were still under the Old Covenant because Christ had not yet died and risen again. And so this was set in an Old Testament time. And in the Old Testament, the temple was the place that God's presence dwelt on earth. That was where, that was the symbol of God's presence on earth. The, the, the Holy of Holies in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, was that visual symbol of God dwelling among his people. We understand that the New Testament concept is different. Each of us who is saved and knows the Lord, we have within us the indwelling Spirit of God, don't we? And now we are told that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Your body, if you are saved, is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And my body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And I'm thankful that I don't have to make a pilgrimage to some location in order to meet with God. I can talk to God wherever I am. 
I can meet with God uh, in my living room or by my bedside or as I drive down the road, I can talk to the Lord because he is always with me. In fact, he's made the promise, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And I'm thankful for the promise of the Lord and the presence of the Lord. But the Old Testament concept of the temple was that it was the house of God, the, the, the place where people would come to meet God. Did you know that there is also a New Testament concept of a house of God beyond just you as an individual Christian? Hold your place here in John chapter 2 and go forward with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul here is writing to Timothy his son in the faith, giving him instructions on how he is to lead the Lord's church. And he says in verse number 14 of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, he says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the New Testament concept of the house of God is the church. Now when we talk about the church as an, in an institutional sense, we understand that this is referring to the local visible assembly of baptized believers, right? That is what a church is. The house of God is the church. Here we are today gathered together in the church. The assembly of God's people together. Now, I want to be clear that the church is not a building. We might refer to it in that way in our uh, vernacular and our vocabulary, I might say, hey, let's, uh, let's get together and have a, let's pray together. Let's meet at the church at such and such a time, and I might be using that term in reference to this building. But we understand, I think most everyone here understands, this building is not the church. This is just a church house. This is just a building. That's literally all it is. And the church is really not, uh, it's not a building, it's not a location. It is an institution, a body of believers. And you and I, as part of this body in Christ, could be meeting together today somewhere, anywhere, and still be the church. Because it is an assembly of God's people. Okay? So, the house of God in the New Testament times is the church of God. That's what he's talking about. So when we talk about being zealous for, for God's house, the, the, the disciples remembered that back in the book of Psalms, it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And they're looking at Jesus and saying, wow, he is zealous for the house of God, the temple. You know, I believe that today, even as New Testament Christians, we ought to be zealous for God's house. I think we should be serious about the Lord's church. In fact, I, I would say that if we understand how much God loves his churches, that we, if we truly love God, would also have to love his church. The Bible says in Ephesians 5 that, that Christ gave himself for the church, that we are to love husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church 
and gave himself for it. If he loves his, if, if we love him, we ought to love his church. We ought to be zealous for the Lord's house. I want to go back to John chapter 2, if you would please, and show you some things that are stated that I think give us insight into what it means to be zealous for God's house. I believe that to be zealous for God's house, first and foremost, is to be zealous for its possessor. To be zealous for its possessor. Look with me in John 2, if you would. Verse 16 again. And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Here's Jesus. And he comes into the temple... And he sees that the people in that place have made that place all about them. And why did that bother him? Why did that upset him? Why did that stir up within him a passion? Because he realized this wasn't man's house. This was God's house. This was his father's house. And because it belonged to his father, and he was serious about his father, he was serious about his father's house. Folks, do you realize that because today, as a New Testament church in Christ, we understand that we are the house of God. This is the house of God that we ought to be zealous for. It. Everything here exists not for us, but for him. It is to be about him. Everything that we do should be for His honor and glory. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that Christ is the head of the church and that in all things He is to have the preeminence. Folks, in this place, Christ ought to have preeminence. Do you know what preeminence means? It, it, somebody might say, well, it means having first place, first in priority. But really, that's not the full meaning of the word preeminence. The word preeminence means to have such high priority that, that that's the only thing that matters. If Christ is to have the preeminence in this place, this is what it means. All that matters is what Christ wants here. It is His house. In other words, we might think, well, because this is a scriptural church, we need to consider, first of all, what does God want? And then once we've kind of checked that box of what he wants, then we can kind of fill in our preferences and our desires beyond that. That's not really truly letting him have preeminence. Letting him have preeminence says, Lord, what do you want in this place? Because that is all that matters. We lay aside our own desires, our own preferences, our own opinions, and we lay it out and say, Lord, what do you want? This is your house. It exists for your glory. The people of the day had made the worship of God about themselves. Folks, look around you in society in the world, in places that call themselves churches. And so much of what goes on is all about the people who come there. 
But that's not what we are to be about. Our purpose is to glorify God. That is our only purpose. To glorify Him. Now listen, I'm not saying that our desire, or even God's desire, is that we make people feel awkward and uncomfortable and drive people away. That's not the case at all. But what I am saying is if we're zealous for God's house, we'll be zealous because of who it belongs to and we will put Him in the place of priority that He will have full preeminence in all things. Jesus was zealous because it wasn't just a house of worship. It was His Father's house. If you love God, you'll love His house. He was zealous for its possessor. Secondly, though... I believe that we ought to be zealous for God's house because we're zealous for its purpose. Its purpose. Uh, go back with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. What we just read in John 2 is where Jesus first cleansed the temple in the beginning of his ministry. But now in Matthew 21, we read of the second cleansing of the temple at the end of his ministry. And you kind of find him kicking off his ministry by going into the house of the Lord and saying, hey, it's time to shape things up. This isn't about you, it's about him. And then again, just before he goes to the cross, he comes into Jerusalem and once again deals with the same issue. And we read about it here in Matthew 21. Notice with me, it says in verse number 12, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, listen to this, my house shall be called the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves. He said the reason that this is unacceptable is because there is a distinct purpose that this place has been designated for one cause. My house is to be a house of prayer. And you've made it a den of thieves. It is to be the place that people come and meet with God and you've made it about yourself. He was zealous for its purpose. Now, Is it possible that the New Testament house of God, the church of God, has a slightly different purpose than the Old Testament temple did? I believe it does. You see, in the Old Testament, again, it was the place where people came and met with the Lord. In the New Testament, the, the Bible teaches us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, that we're able to access God without having to go through some mediator, some priest, some, some man to, to, uh, to give us access to God because we have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know what the purpose of the house of God is today? We read a moment ago in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. He said that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Do you know what the primary purpose of a church is? Or, or, the, or the, I, I told you a moment ago, our purpose is to glorify God. But the way that we accomplish that purpose is by being obedient to His commands. And one of the primary things we are to do 
is to spread forth the truth, to proclaim the truth of the gospel. This place is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, sadly, some people have misinterpreted that to mean that somehow the, the church holds the exclusive monopoly on the truth and that nobody else can have it. If you want truth, you've got to come to the church because we own it. That's not at all what it means to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Here's what it means. We have a responsibility to proclaim the truth to the world. This is the, the place that the, the truth is supposed to be trumpeted from. It's supposed to be disseminated from here. That's why we're in existence. We are to take the light of the gospel to the world. And listen, when in Old Testament times, people made the, the house of God about themselves, it got in the way of the primary purpose, and people could no longer come and, and meet with God in that place because it had become a place of merchandise, a place of selfishness, a place of greed. But do you know what? In New Testament times, when the house of God becomes about us, it gets in the way of the purpose of God to get the gospel to the world. Did you know that even the, what's known as the seeker-sensitive movement of the day that we live in is actually an anti-gospel movement? The seeker-sensitive movement says this, don't make people uncomfortable. Don't make them feel awkward. Try and do anything you can to invite people to come in to make them feel welcome and to make them feel comfortable. You say, how can that be an anti-gospel movement? Well, because the gospel is offensive. I said the gospel is offensive. You know, the gospel is not simply that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. Listen. You are a wretched sinner separated from God on the road to destruction, hell-bound and hell-deserving, and that Christ came and died in your place and paid the penalty for your sin so that you could be redeemed to God, restored to fellowship with God, and that your only hope of eternal life is to turn to Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no salvation apart from him, and you cannot be made right with God until you repent and turn to Christ. That's the gospel. You know what? That's offensive. Why is that offensive? Because I don't like to admit that I am a wretched sinner. I don't like to admit that I am not worthy of being made right with God. But friend, it's the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. But when I want to sugarcoat everything and dumb everything down and, and make everything palatable and acceptable so that I can get people to come in, you know what it does? It hinders the gospel. It gets in the way of what God is trying to do. Listen, God does love sinners. God is in the saving business, and he wants them to know there is a need to turn to Christ and be saved. But you're never going to receive Christ if you don't understand your condition. Folks, the truth is offensive. 
And about the time that we start looking at people and saying, boy, I just love people. I don't, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and I don't want to offend anyone and I don't want to make anyone feel bad. We've missed the point of the gospel. We start to get in the way. And it might feel like a loving thing to never offend, but it's not. True love speaks the truth. We can get consumed with ourselves, other people, our desires, our desire to have a, 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 maybe a big church or whatever the case might be, all kinds of programs. We can, we can put other things as priority and what starts to happen? We're really no different than the money changers in the temple and the, the, the merchants in the temple who made the house of God all about themselves. But Jesus said, hey, there's a purpose in this place. And I'm zealous for the possessor and I'm zealous for the purpose of the house of God. My house is to be called the house of prayer. The house of God is the pillar and ground of the truth. And it exists for that purpose to fulfill the will of God. And it's not about you and it's not about me. And if we're zealous for God, we ought to be zealous for His house. And to be zealous for His house is to be zealous for the purpose of His house. So he was zealous for its possessor. He was zealous for its purpose. And second, thirdly, he was zealous for its purity. He was zealous for its purity. Back in John chapter 2, notice it says in verse number 15, And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers of money, uh, or the, the, yeah, the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things, these things hence. Get this junk out. He was zealous for the purity of God's house. You see, God desires a pure church. God desires a church that is consistent with His will and His desires. And we ought to desire that too. Jesus was willing to come in and to identify the problem and to fix that problem. He didn't say, now guys, it's okay that you continue selling your animals here because after all people have to sacrifice and it's okay that you you know you're here and even making a little bit of profit just make sure that your primary purpose in what you're doing is to glorify God and keep on doing what you're doing he didn't say that he purified it he said get get this stuff out of here anything that gets in the way of what my father wants in his house must go because God desires a pure church Ephesians chapter 5, I mentioned it a moment ago. It tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But then it says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Christ's desire for his church is that on the day of presentation, 
the day of the rapture when Christ calls us out of this world, that we would be able to stand before him a pure church, not spotted, not blemished by the fingerprints of the world, but that we would be true and consistent with his will and his desire and his purpose for us. But you see, because we're a church full of sinful people, and because we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, the reality is that the, the world begins to creep in little by little. Constantly. There's constant pressure from the outside to conform to the world. There's constant pressure even from within to maybe tone things down a little bit here, compromise a little bit in this area, give in a little bit here, and pretty soon what used to be a scriptural sound church that stood for truth, you couldn't even recognize it today. I can point to dozens of examples that I personally know of churches that once stood for truth and stood for right and proclaimed the gospel and proclaimed the word of God that today, I don't even think you could call it a church. Biblically speaking, and I know that many of you could point to the same. You've seen it and I've seen it. How does that happen? Little by little by little, by not coming in and saying, you know what? Here's something that doesn't belong in God's house. Here's something that maybe on the surface doesn't seem like a big deal. I mean, to me, it seems very pragmatic to have at the, at the, at the entrance of the temple, you walk in, you buy your oxen, you buy your sheep. It's convenient, it's easy, I make the sacrifice. The guy who's doing the work makes a little bit of money. What's wrong with that? Seems like a good idea. But you know what? It was getting in the way of what God wanted to do in his house. And Jesus said, it must go. Folks, I believe that to be zealous for the Lord's house is to be zealous for its purity. Now, I'm not saying that we need to walk around always looking for something to nitpick or criticize. In fact, that in itself is very dangerous for a church. But I am saying that we ought to be concerned primarily with what God wants. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that they were to take heed to themselves and to all the flock because he said that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in, not sparing the flock. There are those who are going to come in and destroy from within. Folks, I'm thankful for our church. And I'm thankful for what God has done and is doing in this place. But I want to challenge all of us. Let's be watchful and be serious about things that could enter in and become damaging to God's church. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? I don't know. I'm not thinking of anything or any person or any, anything like that in particular, but I'm just saying this. I know that it's easy for us to start to get kind of lax 
in some areas in regard to the Lord's house and His church. And, and, and pretty soon, if we don't keep the right focus and seek to please the right person, we could easily become, become conformed to this world. And the last thing that this world needs is another imitation of itself. You know what's interesting about churches that seek to be like the world around them? First of all, none of them do a very good job of it. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? The, the Christian copy of the world is always kind of viewed as a knockoff. You know, it's cheap. It doesn't, it doesn't work. But secondly, we totally cut our legs out from under us when we try to be like the world. Because the world's got enough of the world. What they need is light. God's called us here not to be like the world, but to be distinct and separate. Here it says uh, uh, in, in chapter 2 of Jesus that the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That is a quote from Psalm 69. And I want to close with Psalm 69 here uh, this morning and show you what it says about this. Psalm 69 Psalm 69 and verse number 6, he says, Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel, because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. You know what the psalmist is saying here? I don't fit anymore with this world. Even within my own family. I'm not like them. Why? Because the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. I'm consumed with a zeal for you and for your glory. And because of that, I don't fit in this world anymore. I'm a stranger here. People that are zealous for God and for His purposes don't blend in with the world. We stand in stark contrast to the world. And by the way, that's what we're called to do. We're told, Peter said, that we're a peculiar people. Peculiar doesn't just mean, well, those people are odd. It means we're different. We're distinct. We're separate. We're ambassadors for Christ. Folks, the reason for this message, I, I want to just be clear. This isn't in any way me pointing at anyone or anything and, and rebuking. But I was reading through John and, and I saw that the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And I went back to Psalm 69 and I, I read there and, and the Lord just really impressed upon my heart this, this message that we ought to be zealous for God and for His house and for its purpose, and for its purity, because the world is constantly, and the enemy, Satan, is constantly coming against us and seeking by deception and lies to convince us to let down our guard and to get comfortable and to just be 
just to ease into compromise. But folks, let us always keep before us a zeal for truth and a zeal for God and for His purpose and a zeal for reaching the lost of this world. Zealous for God's house. Let's pray. Heavenly